Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's... Yeah. <laughs> They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually foul, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> Owen Cannon Murphy here with the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Cannon Murphy. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Johan Cruyff, uh, unfortunately, though, the really sad news came in today that he's passed away at 68 years of age, um, died of cancer. Now, Cruyff retired from playing more than 30 years ago. Hasn't managed a top-level team since he finished with Barcelona 20 years ago. And yet, to this day, his name comes up again and again when people discuss modern football, the way it's played in 2016, the way it's thought about, the way it's talked about. That's a pretty strong indication of the impact that the man had, I think. One of the most innovative people in the history of football, Ken. Is that, would that be his defining trait, do you think? I think so. I'm the best European player ever. Uh, and there's a pretty good argument that he's the greatest Dutchman of all time. Uh, they actually did one of those, you know, 100 greatest Dutch people. Yeah. Paul, I remember there was a kind of craze for doing them just shortly after the millennium. Yeah. Everybody did. I can't remember if we did. we do one. I'm trying to think. I think we did. I think Michael Collins won. <laughs> And then, well, let's not go down that road. Yeah. No, you can, listen, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can listen to our other podcast today if you want to hear um, historical Irish debates. Churchill won the English one. I'm nearly thirty. He did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. yeah. Are you uh, telling me Johan Cruyff won the Dutch one? No. Uh, I'll tell you the top ten. It was Pim Fortuyn who was the number one. He was the right wing Dutch politician who was assassinated very uh, shortly before this program went on air. Uh, the fact that he ended up topping the poll. Um, maybe showed a certain recency bias in the voters, uh, caused a lot of um, uproar at the time. Followed by William of Orange, uh, also a, a big man in, in the history mm. in the history of other countries too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Would have got a few. Would have got a few votes over here in this the, this uh, country also. Uh, Willem Drace, who was the post-war, post-Second World War uh, prime minister uh, and a kind of social reformer, uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, who. Uh, made great contributions in the 17th century to the discoveries in microbiology. For instance, he was one of the first to observe sperm under the microscope to see them there. Swimming away. Swimming around. Uh, Erasmus in number five. 
the great uh, philosopher of the Middle Ages, early uh, early Renaissance, uh, Johann Cruyff number six, right. Uh, followed then by Michiel de, de Ruyter, who apparently was a you know a naval admiral in the 17th century. Again, 17th century was a very uh, was a big Holland was kind of a big deal in the 17th what century. What a time to be a Dutchman. Uh, Anne Frank, number eight, uh, Rembrandt, number nine, and number ten was Vincent van Gogh. So you can see that you know while he was still alive, he was already considered among the greatest uh, Dutchmen of all time, and I think that. I think that he will be remembered for as, as long as Rembrandt is, for sure. That's the point I was making, uh, trying to make, certainly, about how relevant he has remained to this day. It's not as though suddenly Johan Cruyff has passed away and everyone starts having to think about the impact that he might have had 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago when he was in his prime as a player. I mean, it's, it's continued through various iterations and through different teams in different countries. Yeah, would it, be, would it be fair to say that you can see Johan Cruyff's influence now a lot more even than you could have maybe 15 years ago? Would that be true? No, I think, I think that even 15 years ago, I mean, 15 years ago, his, he was relatively recently the manager of Barcelona. I mean, as recently the manager of Barcelona, you know, more or less as Guardiola is now, uh, had been a European champion, had, had led them to their first Champions League, the first European Cup. Uh, hadn't managed to win it more than once. Lost the final, obviously, in 94. Uh, and the team ultimately fell apart in the way that teams, in the way that Barcelona teams used to do all the time. Um, but, you know, I think that, I, I think by then he'd, he'd actually made all of his contributions. What we, yeah, I, I mean, I would agree, though, uh, that what we've seen since then is the kind of the ultimate triumph of his... Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, sorry, that was the point of the ...of his methods, yeah. absolutely. Because he, you know, one of his quotes, and he's a guy who, who inspired or originated a lot of sayings that became famous. Um, one of them was that there's no greater medal than being than to be acclaimed for your style, which are the, which are the words of a man who's still trying to convince himself that losing the 1974 <laughs> World Cup <laughs> final was, in a way, winning it. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, he was saying, we're the team everyone remembers. Who remembers the Germans? Well, everyone remembers the Germans. Actually, <laughs> the they beat you. in the team for a start. Um, but, you know, you know what, what, what later transpired was the kind of conquest of the world by teams that played, uh, well, self-consciously modelled themselves on his principles of play. So most obviously the Guardiola, Barcelona, the Barcelona team that's kind of dominated Europe, the Germany team that's currently the world champions, the Spain team, that uh, won the three international tournaments prior to that. So I suppose, in a sense, he kind of had the ultimate victory there, even though he didn't have anything to do with with those teams. And the Holland team that got to the final in, in 2010 had very little to do with anything that he was doing. And in fact, before the final, he made sure before the final to put it on record that he didn't want them to win. <laughs> he was disgusted by what they were doing, and they were a shame and a disgrace to the people. But he, he had a lot of these sayings which mainly took uh, the form of paradox. It's kind of an, in, it's an interesting thing in, um, that a lot of the sayings have in common. I mean, stuff like, uh, every disadvantage has its advantage. So this is like, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote an entire book about this, uh, which is effectively stretches out over 300 pages, what is condensed into that one Could line. Could have a lot of writing there, old Malcolm. But he would have lost out on a lot of money. So, you know, maybe, maybe Malcolm Gladwell knows the thing or two. Um, but uh, before I make a mistake, I don't make that mistake. Ooh, I like that one. Uh, if I'd wanted you to understand, I'd, I'd have explained it better. That's actually not really a paradox so much as an insult. I think that's just like saying, 
you know, you're a dumbass and it doesn't really matter what you think. You weren't there, so it doesn't matter. Uh, football is simple. What's hard is playing simple football. Um, if I start running, the press mixes up speed and insight. If I start running before you, I look faster. Uh, there was one recent one in his um, column because he, he was obviously a very vocal man all through and out throughout his life and he continued long into his retirement. I mean, he had a very long retirement uh, because he, well, essentially he was a chain smoker all throughout his career and continued to be a heavy smoker right up until, you know, his early 40s when he ended up having to have a, you know, bypass, a heart bypass. And um, his wife, once he left Barcelona, his wife didn't want him working in football management again. He said, no, I don't, just please don't do this anymore. The, the pressure's too much. The uh, It's not good for your health. Uh, and so he didn't work uh, again after he left Barcelona. I mean, he worked. He did lots of work. He was writing these columns. He was trying to, he was trying to reinvent Ajax. He kept trying to take over Ajax. I mean, he didn't necessarily always do good things. I mean, he was ruthless. You know, he was arrogant. He was uh, trying to remake Ajax and, uh, according to his own dictatorial sort of principles without really taking account of what other people thought or even if he was necessarily in the right. He, he was not the kind of person who would think much about that. He would think... I'm automatically in the right. Yeah. Um, but one recent one from his column, if you watch the whole game, you don't see Busquets, but if you watch Busquets, you see the whole game. So it's like it's a kind of... Um, it's, so many of them are kind of along the same pattern. And what they're doing is kind of... It shows an ability to look at things upside down, you know, or to, to sort of uh, switch things around in your, in your head. Why is it this way? Does it have to be this way? What if it was... You know, what if it was this way? And so each of them kind of are illuminating a kind of in, insight. I mean, before I make a mistake, I don't make that mistake. It doesn't make any sense. But you know what he's saying, right? You know, you, you see what I mean? Yep. Um, I mean, he. so he was a kind of a great uh, inventor of tactics. And there's a, there's a brilliant clip of him on YouTube, which, which kind of shows, it shows a lot of what he's about, really. It's just like... Uh, uh, what's it called? Yeah, Cruyff explains his diamond formation. It's a great clip. It's like about four minutes. And it's like, it's one of these Dutch football TV shows. And there's a bunch of guys just sitting around, you know, talking. sort of a bunch of middle-aged men, one of whom is, is Johan Cruyff. And there's like a blackboard there. And at some point he gets up, like it's subtitled. They're, they're all yapping away in Dutch. Um, but at some point he's like, yeah, you know, so... Uh, starts drawing little X's on the blackboard. So this is my Barcelona team. This is how it was, you know, and da da da. And he's kind of explaining how they moved around in this in this system. Um, but what's brilliant about it is he's coming to. He, he's sort of explaining why he has like his side backs. He calls them, you know, Sergi and Reisiger. Why he has them kind of running up and down. Oh, they got to make this run. They got to make this run all the time. And why am I getting them to do this well? And you're kind of what you're sort of expecting is for him to say, well, because you know they move up on the on the side of the field, and suddenly the fullback has to worry about them, and that creates space inside, and blah blah blah. You know, you're expecting something on those lines. He's saying, well, because if if he if he makes this run every time in this situation, you you do two two things. First of all, if the striker and indicates the striker in the other team doesn't respond, suddenly everybody starts complaining. His coach, all his teammates are all complaining he's not doing anything. Secondly, if he does respond, if he chases after the guy, after he does it 10 times, and then you don't have to worry about him for the rest of the game because he's exhausted. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it's like the whole point of the tactic is not, is not really to do, uh, is not really to kind of do what, what you kind of think tactics are meant to do, create space in the field. It's actually to psychologically mess up the other team, to exhaust the striker or to get them at each other's throats, uh, which is maybe the kind of, 
an example of why uh, being a great player, if you also have you know a kind of a, a mind, a great mind to go with it, you're always ultimately going to have an edge on someone like you know an Andre Villas Boas type, you know a guy who thinks a lot about the game and he, you know. But maybe maybe having done that, having kind of been there for twenty years, having been through all these situations, having lived the experience, and as well as thought about it in a in a kind of um, theoretical way. To be able to put those two together, he probably did it better than anybody who'd ever lived. All right, David Winner wrote about some of this kind of stuff and a lot of great. Uh, there were a lot. There was a lot of. Well, there's a big presence, I guess, of Johan Cruyff in his book *Brilliant Oranges* and *You're the Genius of Dutch Football*. He also wrote a very big feature on Cruyff for Bleacher Report just lately, a couple of weeks back, I think. The Church of Cruyff forever spreading the football gospel. So, be good to get David's recollections. In a little while, Richie Sadler is going to be here in studio with two Ireland games coming up for players to force themselves into O'Neill's plans for the Euros. And we'll talk to Richie about Jack Byrne, for whom, I don't know if he is classed as one of those players. You would have thought this tournament would come too soon for him. He's playing for the under-21s, but he could be a big part of future plans. He certainly won't be phased by anything that's going to come his way, judging by his very confident quotes this week. It's time for Ken's Report on Sport. So one story that we're going to talk about today, on is UEFA. Uh, now this is UEFA at a not a not an officially sourced level, rather at a reported, a briefed level, um, and this is to do with the Champions League. Uh, UEFA is considering a major revamp of the Champions League. Now this kind of talk has been happening for a little while now. The driver of it on this occasion is it's always the same thing. It's always uh, we don't think we're making enough money, um, and a lot of the clubs in uh, Germany and in Spain particularly are looking at the current setup and thinking we can't, we're not going to be able to compete with the sort of money that the Premier League clubs are getting. Uh, I mean, the, now that the you know, Premier League, you know, the, the, the money you get for winning the Premier League is more than three times what you get for winning the Champions League now. It's kind of dwarfing it now. Um, the money that you get for finishing bottom of the Premier League is nearly twice what you get for winning the Champions League. So... This has ceased to make any sense. Uh, and as far as the, some of the big European clubs are concerned, this isn't going to work in the long term. Uh, they don't seem to want to wait around for the Premier League's bubble to burst, though. They want to get involved in a bubble of their own. And in the case of the Premier League clubs among them, the very top ones, they probably want to be involved in two bubbles. Oh, why if not? If it's possible to temporarily remove yourself from the Premier League bubble and just spend a little bit of time in a slightly smaller bubble of top European clubs, then go for it. It's, yeah, I mean, so... So uh, what is this? It's, it's kind of like a, they're proposing something along, not a million miles off the European Super League that was mooted. There was that meeting that mm. a lot of these big clubs had with the uh, the American guy who backs the preseason tournaments. And that was supposed, you know, the rumours were that was about a new European breakaway Super League. It's not quite as dramatic as that. But mm. it is it isn't a million miles off what's being proposed. No, it, well, so what they're talking about is uh, what about instead of the current situation with the uh, we've got a group stage, you know, round robin group stage followed by a succession of knockout rounds. What about you have a knockout round or two followed by a big round robin group stage involving say eight teams in each group. So eight teams that would play each other home and away, seven matches at home, seven matches away, 14 matches. It's a lot of European European Super League action. Uh, it's a lot of money. And obviously, if you've got that original knockout round to make sure you don't have any of the Bate Borisovs in there, then you know you could literally have, 
Inter against Real Madrid, against Bayern, against you know Arsenal, against Inter, against Real Madrid, against Bayern, against Arsenal, <laughs> over and over and over. You know, it, 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 there's no need for for those matches ever to stop. Um, and then at the end, I'm not sure what they would do at the end. Whether they whether it would be the top two would go through to semi-finals or the the winner of each group would play each other in the in the ground. I don't know how they do it. I mean, how are you going to have a system by which which will ensure that most of the matches in this league won't just be completely boring? Uh, wasn't this the, you know the very first Champions League? Mm. Wasn't that a wasn't that a group stage right up until the final? That the, it was like the two winners of the two groups went through to the final. They had. Have I misremembered that? They, no, no. They had two teams, two groups of four, which were this, which were which was effectively the semi-finals. The, yeah. So the the last eight, instead of doing quarterfinal, semi-final, final, they had two groups of four. Yeah. The winners of both went through which, the final. Which yeah. is not an altogether new format. I mean, for instance, the you know the World Cup in 1950 did it. Yeah, the, I think the World Cup in in 74 um, uh, and 82. I'm pretty sure they did it. Which, which the I guess two group it, stages, but I think it still went to then semi finals. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think that's what they did in 92. Anyway, that, that that there was two groups of four, and the winners played each other in the final. That was the one when Rangers nearly got to the Champions League final. If you remember, like, you yeah. know, Mark Haley and all those guys. Um, but yeah, I, I just find this like, why would you? The one good thing about the Champions League at the moment is the fact that as it goes on, as it approaches the climax of the season, the matches get bigger and more exciting. And the fact that you know you've got the knockout rounds, everything is on the line in these matches. All the Champions League matches after Christmas, you know, the knockout matches are the ones where everything is really on the line. The league matches, the group matches, are boring. Uh, I mean, uh, Jamie Jackson's, Jackson's report on this in The Guardian says that uh, the Bate Borisov, the fact that Real Madrid had to play against Bate Borisov was brought up. And everyone was like, well, what Obviously, a waste of time this is that terrible. was. Yeah. <laughs> what an utter waste of time that was. I don't think anyone wanted to see that, you know. Probably people in, uh, you know, in Bel- Belarus thought it was pretty cool. But, you know, apparently he had low ratings in Spain. But I was thinking to myself, hang on a second, what? This is, it doesn't matter what happens. You're not, you're not happy. I mean, didn't the whole idea for the Champions League originate when Silvio Berlusconi and whoever was in charge of Real Madrid at the time got really annoyed that Real Madrid had to play Napoli? Wasn't it Real Madrid and Napoli in a really early stage of the European Cup? And one of them had to be knocked out at an early stage. And they were thinking, oh, this is terrible. We can't have, this is, this is a crime against football. We can't have... A football match deciding which wh- that you know which one only one of Real Madrid and Napoli gets through, but now apparently so 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 the whole idea of the Champions League was to avoid those kinds of decisive early clashes between the the big teams, mm-hmm. um, in order basically that, that Real Madrid and Napoli would play each other in the semi final or the final. But now apparently Real Madrid can't play Bate Borisov either. It's like well they're too small. Napoli are too big. Now Bate Borisov are too small. I don't know, I don't I don't know who the just right teams. Would be Wolfsburg. I don't Remember know if Wolfsburg. I don't know if Wolfsburg would even. Qual- I think they're, they're more like Borisov. Yeah. You know. I think. Uh, Liverpool. Porto. Uh, you know. Real Madrid should should be playing Liverpool. They should get a chance to obviously if beat Liverpool up on were, Liverpool in the yeah. in the. If group. Liverpool were to beat Real Madrid, I'm sure there's some way that you could get Real Madrid back involved. Well, how do you decide? Like yeah. Surely, sorry to cut across here, but like Liverpool's an, an interesting example because even if you just look at the Premier League teams, how many Premier League teams are supposed to end up in this in the 16? team tournament mm-hmm. two well I guess as many as well it's a 32 team tournament you see you've got you've got that original 
Yeah, but you've Knock got to, you've got to, yeah, but that doesn't count. That's like a playoff. That's like the qualifying rounds that exist now to get into the groups. Do you know what I mean? It, uh, you don't it, lose the English team there. You lose your Ballet Barasovs in the knockout round. And then when it gets to the obviously, 16... Obviously the draw would be seated. Yeah, that, that has been mentioned. As oh well, yeah, the draw well, I mean, there's no point having an unseated yeah, draw. Then you're then you're right back to the Real Madrid against Napoli nightmare of 1987-88 or whatever it was. You know, that there's no point in it if that could happen. You could have Bate Barsov against Wolfsburg in the group stage. Ah. Cats marrying dogs. I mean, who, <laughs> you know, the, forget about it then. You know, I just find it the whole thing just so kind of off-putting. It's like this is this is supposed to be a sporting competition. Real Madrid survived the game against Bate Barsov this year. It's going to be okay. You know? It, that, I mean, I know, okay, a game between Real Madrid and Bate Barsov is really not that interesting because you just assume there's only going to go one way. It's, it's not even really a contest. That's what you kind of think. But, and so maybe it's not that attractive as a spectacle unless you're, you know, interested in one of those teams particularly. But there's no point in... in changing the game so as to make it so as to make that even more even more the case there's also a major issue with eight team groups and that is that you lose your first two games and you throw the rest of the matches all your matches are dead rubbers or at least give up on them how many how many uh, top top players are you know how how much of their first team are are clubs going to be putting into the second half of a already doomed European campaign In, in, in March when you are actually looking for games to to give up on because you're probably challenging for a league title. Not a, not a yeah. hope. Whereas yeah. now, when, when, at least with the Champions League in March, you've, you've got some high quality competitive games that the teams have to, you know, this is it. It's all it's all on the line for these knockout games. You have to give it everything here. This tournament could end up going, it could be the inverted idea of how a tournament should work. It could be like the GA National Leagues where you end up having game, oftentimes you have less interest as it goes on. Mm. I'd be very interested in fairness in that structure if you had a big team even two reasonably big teams playing each other if it was possible in that in that knockout qualifying round but then once they get in there conceivably one of those teams could lose their first two games and then any fixture they're involved in from then on is pointless finish, and yeah. actually I'll tell you what else you can't, you can't even get relegated you know there's no, yeah. there's no pointy stick at the bottom for the for the teams to fall on, unless you you ban them from Europe for you know two years. If you if, if <laughs> you ban them from Europe for two years for finishing in the bottom three out of eight, that would keep things interesting. But yeah. I don't know if they'd agree to that either. No, and I'll tell you what. Just interesting to use the word inversion there because to, to say, for instance, and this is utter stupidity. Say, for instance, this isn't about money. So let's say they try and uh, create a sporting reason to have a competition like this. UEFA are making their European international championship a 24 team complete disaster zone uh with terrible terrible teams they'll make it a 30 uh, team competition pretty soon and at the same time in their club competition doing the exact opposite which is shrinking it and shrinking it to ensure that there are no irelands in the champions league Mm. there are no uh northern irelands will ever get within an ass's roar of the the last rounds of the champions league i mean that's obviously predicated on a foolhardy notion that this is something other than a money harvesting operation on both counts both for the UEFA European Championships and the UEFA Champions League but hey okay so we're agreed that's what people love on radio and podcasts and any sort of any any sort of media consensus I'd like to further agree with my colleagues we've we've reached consensus and loads of great stuff to get in so we'll wrap up Ken Erdy's one story report on sport alright that's good manners (laughs) 
players have played when they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business. You know what I was going to do? It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame. You know, some sort of animal. You know what I mean? Um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like what a Teresa. You know, he's. Um, I don't know. We want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. The food's been excellent. The training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Let's hear more about the impact that the late Johan Cruyff made on football in Holland, in Spain, worldwide, really. David Winner, author of Brilliant Orange. Great to have you on the show again, David. But uh, shame about the circumstances. What was... Your reaction when you heard the news today? Deeply shocked and upset. I, I was just looking on his uh, Twitter feed uh, a couple of days ago, and his uh, he posted these really cheerful, healthy-looking pictures of himself with his son Yordi in in Israel, where Yordi now works, and he'd visited him. He and his wife uh, had visited Yordi about two weeks ago, and I thought, well, okay, he's great. He looked fantastic. So I, I just. I wasn't worried about him. I had been, and then I wasn't. And then today's horrible, horrible news. Is it too much, David, to describe Johan Cruyff as the most influential figure in the history of football? Uh, no, I think that's about right. He's, um, you know, there's, there's BC before Cruyff and after. Um, the influence that he had on, well, he transformed not quite single-handedly, but it, it couldn't have happened without him. Uh, Holland, from a sort of third-rate footballing backwater to the most uh, influential and admired and important football country in the 70s, early, late 60s, early 70s. Um, then he went to, you know, he, he co-invented, I think it's fair to say, total football, but then he, uh, the co-inventor would, would, was Renus Meikles, the great coach, um, who, who brought sort of discipline and energy and drive um, professionalism to Holland that hadn't existed before. But the genius, the absolute genius at the heart of it, both as a, as a sort of tech, technician and player on the field, but then later as a guru and coach of it, the genius was Cruyff. And all the great Dutch players are in his debt and his shadow, really, all of them. Um, all, all his contemporaries in the 70s, uh, the second generation, Hullet and Baston, Rijkaard, Koeman, each each of them, uh, and many others as well, were his proteges and disciples. And then again, he's um, he's the sort of key influence behind the institutionalisation of what we now call the Dutch school, the, the total football Dutch school. It's essentially a Cruyffian way of seeing the game. Um, then that spreads to Barcelona. First, he goes as a player. Later, even more importantly, he's he's their coach and he's the founder of Tiki Taka. Essentially, Guardiola, another of his disciples, uh, said during the the peak years of, of Guardiola's Barcelona, you know, Cruyff built our cathedral. We just maintain it. Uh, the creed has gone from Barcelona to. All of Spain, the Spanish national team. It then went um, to Germany as well. The world, current world champions, the current probably best two teams in the world. 
Barcelona and Bayern both play in a Cruyffian way, direct direct line of influence. Um, he was the key figure uh, in the background, really. He, he wasn't directly involved, but he was the sort of inspiration and <clears throat> um, main... Yeah, main main man in a way behind the <coughs> AC Milan, the great AC Milan team of, uh, of of the late eighties and early nineties. Um, his influence spread everywhere. Yeah, no, it's a really, uh, I mean, it's a really good summation of what he did. And you you used the term genius there a couple of times. And when David Bowie passed away recently, he, uh, I think the sense of wonderment that we have with some of these individuals is. Uh, it's born out of a sense that they're original, that there actually isn't anyone else like them. I mean, you're constantly hearing this refrain these days that uh, nobody reinvents the wheel, be that in sport or in society or whatever. Yeah. You, but it seems like somebody like David Bowie certainly did in his realm. And the way you talk about Cruyff there, he really did seem to reinvent. He brought something to the game that didn't actually exist before. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a strong parallel between the two of them. Um Singular genius is not always loved as much as they should have been and appreciated as much as they should have been. Um, Cruyff, especially in Holland, always had his detractors. Um, you know, he was seen as too difficult, too trouble, uh, unreliable in some ways. Um, he's when he when he if he ended his his career after his his later. Years when he first arrived at Barcelona, he was he could do no wrong and everything was was great and went swimmingly. Later, he had he fell out with with a coach there, German coach Hennis Weisweiler. And by the time he left in '78, he was kind of a bit fed up with with playing and he he basically left left European football. He went off to to play in America and so on. And then he he came back um, in the early '80s as a player to Ajax and the Ajax management at the time were not at all convinced that this was going to be a good idea. He played two absolutely incredible seasons for them. And then the, 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 I forget what this title was present or whatever it was of the, of the club sort of disrespected him to the degree saying, you know, we just, we don't rate you. We think, we think you're too old. It was like 30, he was 33, I think at the time too old we don't we don't think you're going to be sufficiently big box office you know we're not renewing your contract so he in in just just to make a point he he moved to Feyenoord for a season and almost single-handedly won them the double that year and then retired <laughs> so um yeah there, there, there's i think i think now that he's died and it's a very strange and upsetting thing to say um but now that he's died he will be accorded the kind of love and respect and universal admiration in holland and everywhere else that he was slightly slightly denied in life i mean he was a as you alluded to there the fact that he had detractors you know many detractors reflected the fact that he was not an easy man to get on with a lot of the time uh you know he, he was a man of strong views uh, who who wasn't shy and in, in uh, you know he didn't disguise his contempt for those uh, with whom he disagreed. Um, I wonder is that sort of part of being an originator uh, like that? I mean, is it is it is it necessary sometimes for somebody you know who's who's operating that level to be a little bit obnoxious? Um, he had this 
something that he inherited a little bit from from Renus Michels, the conflict model, conflict model of uh, gingering up uh, teams and, and and training sessions and and his relations with his working relations with people uh, by sort of provoking a fight just to get the adrenaline levels up, which was a pretty I always thought was a pretty pretty daft way of going about things. Um, others. You know, do quite well with 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 a, a more emollient kind of kind of kind of approach. But that was Kreif, and he's um, yeah. I mean, that was that was part of the problem that he he would often fall out with people, um, but at the same time he would he would inspire deep deep and abiding affection and loyalty. Um, but there's yeah, for example, he he'd fallen out with. Um, the, the, the leading Dutch goalkeeper before the uh, 1974 tournament, Jan van Beveren. I, I don't entirely know why. They just they didn't get on for some reason. And then, I, again, I can't remember if Jan Beveren was, there was a period where he was injured. But anyway, Cruyff went for a different kind of keeper and sort of more or less invented what we now think of as the sweeper keeper. Uh, persuaded Michels, who was the coach for that national team in that in that tournament, to pick a guy called Jan Jongblut, who was considered old and eccentric, uh, but he was terribly good with his feet. And Kreif, uh said, "Well, look, this is better for us. We can play in a much more offensive way, more attacking way. With this guy acting as sort of second sweeper, um, in the way that a player like you know Manuel Neuer now does." So brilliantly, and mm. um, that's a straight line of um, influence from Kreif. Um and it arose out of a, a conflict, an argument with this with a teammate. So it was, it had a positive aspect as well as a uh, a negative. As as Kreif said, his famous line: "Every disadvantage has its advantage." <laughs> You're the. Full title of your book, uh, your famous book on Dutch football is Brilliant Orange, the Neurotic Genius of Dutch Soccer. And I presume we can certainly extend that uh, neurotic genius tag to Johan Cruyff. Was his, his genius a typically Dutch type uh, type of genius? Could Johan Cruyff have been born anywhere in the world or did he have to come from Holland? Um, I, I'm fascinated by that question. I think he would have been very different if, he, if he'd been... Born in Buenos Aires or London or Milan or Munich or um, or anywhere else. Different, he, in, different in what way? Do you think? Well, I, he, he's the, the great invention of Kreif and the Dutch, uh, because it wasn't only Kreif, though he later, as I said, he was he was a great exponent. He was the great um, systematizer of it. Um, was this idea that, that football is not a game of, of individual contests, but a spatial contest where you see the, 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 the entire pitch as one, uh, as one unit. So you all attack together, you all defend together. Everything that is done in one corner of the field is done with, a, with an eye on knowing what's happening in the other corner of the field. Nothing, you, there's no place for individual duels. The whole thing is one. Um, and that's a spatial, you know, this idea of, of, of seeing space um, as uh, almost a, 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 as the key concept, anyway. The, the space is a thing, the, 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 the field is a space to be manipulated rather than individual dribbling or power 
or trickery or, or any of the kind of things that the English believed in or that Brazilians believed in. So passing and space and so on. And that, that was the Dutch, the defining Dutch thing. And it, 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 it I'm sure, drew um, unconsciously, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was unconscious, but it drew from centuries of Dutch tradition in art, uh, politics, land management, um, this Dutch tradition of, of, of seeing space in a very unusual way and doing very, very clever and original things to maximize space and to use it very cleverly. So you see it in the art of, you know, Mondrian and Sandradam and Vermeer and people like that. And you see it in the way the, the, the Dutch organize their towns and cities. And you see it in the way the Dutch organized their football. So I think he was profoundly Dutch in that way. Uh, in, in others too, um, his humor was a very Amsterdam kind of humor. There are local things like that, but this very fundamental Dutch spatial thing. I think that was unique, and partly because he came uh, from Amsterdam. Isn't David uh, great to talk to you in the show? As I said, uh, unfortunately, very tragic circumstance. But thanks very much for sharing your thoughts on Johan Cruyff. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> There's something about the year in Feyenoord that sums up Johan Cruyff that he was. Balchy enough to do that. Mm-hmm. You could use the word vindictive in that particular context. Just standing up for himself. Just standing up for himself, standing up for what he believes in, pissing Ajax off in the process, but being brilliant enough at the age of 30-whatever to pull off the league title with yeah. Feyenoord. And somehow to not have the Ajax fans hate him. Well, not somehow. Obviously, he'd built up a lot of, you know, a lot of good faith amongst those Ajax fans. But surely there was a year there, maybe one or two, where Ajax fans were like, Okay, yeah, Cruyff, we, 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 we get the point, but please don't lead our hated rivals to a league title against us. Well, I think uh, I think the, the people who would end up being blamed are the people who didn't sign sign him up, you know? Sign him up. Sign him up, yeah. That, that's what they should have done. Uh, I mean, he was the greatest player in the history of the club uh, by a long way, so... What are the supporters going to do? You know, you can't, you can't turn on your greatest ever player. You can. He could have gone. He could have gone to. I don't know how FC Twente were doing around then. Ken. He could have gone somewhere within Holland and had a respectable second or third place finish. He he could have even gone. Well, he'd been to America already at that stage, and yeah. actually that league was probably defunct by then. But there were other places to go. I'm sure to earn a bit of money. Well, but he decides no. Well, it wasn't all about the money. It wasn't actually. I don't think. No, it was uh, also about uh, rubbing uh, their nose in it. Lots of interesting stuff going on around the Ireland setup as preparations for the Euros build up ahead of steam. We had Richie in studio before Martin O'Neill's press conference today. Richie, how are things? Owen, how are you doing? You well? I'm doing pretty well, yeah. Uh, looking Well, I'm looking forward to seeing if any players can burst into Martin O'Neill's thinking over the course of these next couple of friendlies. I presume the young players uh, coming into the squad or the fringe players have a very different mindset to these games than the, the guys who've been around for years. Yeah, I'd assume so. Um the, the ones who've been around for years, I mean, Martin O'Neill even said it in a press conference the other day, he, he's not really looking to, to learn anything new from the fellas who've been with him throughout the whole campaign. Um, it's the, Yeah, it's the ones who've come in who, who I, su- I assume he'll be looking at them to see how they're doing around the hotel, how they're going to mix with the other players, how they do in training, whether they're overawed, whether they give a, a crap about the, the, the reputations of the senior lads, all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I don't know, I think with some of them, they'd have to do a hell of a lot in the next week or 10 days to get in in the absence of injuries to any of the established players. You use, sorry, just the fact that you used the phrase around the hotel, good around the hotel. 
Um, reminds me of Martin O'Neill talking a couple of weeks ago about this, and he said, I wouldn't want to have my team full of lads who were good around the hotel. You know, if I see Iniesta, you know, I'm not going to, Iniesta just bursting past someone, I'm not going to say, well, that lad is really good around the hotel. Um, but I wondered, is I that... Suppose, I suppose just a quite maybe someone who doesn't see an evening as an opportunity to go out in the pit. So you, have someone you, who has have just you, shows some kind of element of professionalism or that he knows that he's not going to whinge about being bored. He's not going to be looking to bring a load of prostitutes into every, the room every <laughs> night and that he's not going to sneak out for pints. I was about to say that's We're setting the bar very high here. Um, have, you, have you ever come across somebody who literally <clears throat> wasn't good enough around the hotel, regardless of their ability, they just weren't good enough around the hotel to, to cut it at this level? I don't know. I think you do get players... I think it was Nasri left out of the France squad last night for kind of personality reasons or for the, his disruption to the squad. There was some kind of... Well, he sat in the throne of the king, Thierry Henry, on the bus. Yeah, I think there are some examples like that where you think, right, maybe somebody's presence is more hassle than it's worth. I don't think any of the Irish lads currently would be considered to be that. I like the way you're just having to think. I'm having to think, you know? yeah. No, in fairness, it doesn't seem to be the case, but the... I get O'Neill's point. Sorry that you know be, having good table manners at the hotel is no <laughs> is no indication that you're going to be any use on the pitch. But it is if you're going to be one of these players who is just who can't get his head around the fact that after training you have to rest mm. and that you're, you're not looking for excitement at every opportunity in the evening. Um, better to have those type of players. But this squad, uh, we're talking about Martin O'Neill's squad as though we know it, which we don't really. It's there were thirty nine people named in this originally when they're getting yeah. it's the thirty three man squad now, which is still Which is I huge. think like Walters has gone home and you yeah, know, there's always a couple of little injuries, but uh, what's the idea behind that? Just make people feel make the regulars feel a little insecure about their places, maybe? But naming that big as well, or just just for a manager to because surely there are some among those thirty three that he's not seriously thinking about. Yeah, I don't know whether he wants to give the really fringe lads, like so the lads who are number 38, 39 and 40 in, in, in a 40 man squad, give them the impression or an incentive that you know, you're in my thoughts. In case there are injuries or whatever. A, 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 they know, yeah. Exactly. So that, so that if, because you always get it in Chris Forrester's the latest example, you, you, you get a spate of interviews from the player who's called up to a 40 man squad for the first time. So then he goes through this thing for a few days where he's doing the interviews and he talks about how it feels to be called up for the first time and then he usually qualifies and says, well, you know, I know it's going to be cut, but it's nice to be in the thoughts. So they get that little experience of of, of that. Yeah. I don't know whether that's enough of a reason to keep picking 40 every time. Um, I don't know whether it would bring that much insecurity to the established lads. Like, the established lads are established for a reason. Like, you know, they're, they're, some of them will know. Who is established, though? Who is an established player in this team? The ones who we know will go to. So France. you mean for inclusion in the squad rather yeah. than so someone like Shane Long, for instance, can be pretty confident if he's not injured, he's going to be in the squad. But they, they, they are not They're, not necessarily that he's going to play a game or you know start a game. You mean we're not too we're very uncertain about the starting. Well, I, I think so. In the, in the first game, as opposed to four years ago. I mean, there's John Walters. I think Trap named the team around January for the first game. Yeah, four years ago. Um, <laughs> Just so you can all get started on your, uh, you know, Euro 2012 supplements. Here's the team. <laughs> this, this, Pediti, this, hope you're listening. Uh, this Walters, you, you say, is probably going to play if he's fit in yeah. one because because almost he plays in a couple of different positions. You know, one of them he's going to be in. I'm sure James McCarthy, I'd say, is going to be. Yeah, John O'Shea. Playing. John O'Shea. Yeah. Can he necessarily be sure? Yeah. 
You think so? Yeah. If if O'Shea is fit, he'll play. Coleman will play. Walters, McCarthy, Whelan, Brady. You think Whelan? Oh, he's picked him for every game he's available. Yeah. Again, you put yourself in the mind of Martin O'Neill here. I would imagine I'd be amazed if he if he goes to the tournament that decides, you know what, Whelan. We don't need you anymore. Brady, I think you're right in Brady as well there, yeah. Brady, yeah, like, we'll it's, it's where he plays, yeah. where, probably left back. But Hendrick, you assume if he's if there Hendrick and available, there. Yeah. He, 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 he's done a lot in the qualifying campaign too. And up front, I, I, like I don't know, is it Shane Long, is it Daryl Murphy, Wes Houlihan? Like, there, there's, there's scope for a bit of change there. But Who the other central defender is, who the goalkeeper is. I mean, there's, you know, the goalkeeper could be just, you, you almost pick from random from these three guys. Mm. The three guys being... You would assume Elliot and Randolph will both go. Yeah. yeah. And then it's one from Ford, Westwood, Given. Yeah. Am I leaving out anyone? No, not really. It's no, a lot of goalkeepers. It is. That's a hell of a lot of goalkeepers. None of whom... We, we're mm. quite lucky with keepers. I mean, obviously we've had a couple of great ones. We have been. Given at his best was, was great. But we rarely have anyone that makes a bad mistake. Oh, this is seriously touch wood time. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, David Ford comes in, does really well against Germany, does really well in a few games, then he gets dropped, then Randolph comes in out of nowhere and Givens injured in the middle of the Germany game, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he doesn't make any mistakes either. He's pretty solid and gets, gets an assist for himself there on the board. It, we seem to be blessed with all these goalkeepers. Uh, I want to see I want to see Fordy in there. I know you're friends with David Ford, Richie, so you're going to lose all your journalistic objectivity here. And we had him on the TV show last year, and he was one of the nicest uh, footballers that, that we've met. So we're all in the David Ford camp. <laughs> I, I, bump, I bumped into him briefly on Saturday. I was over at Millwall um, just as he was coming off the pitch. I was in the tunnel area um, just brief chat with him, whatever. But even at club level, like he, he's the number two now. He, he's not vying for a position with the other fellow. It's not a rotational thing. It's not... Like he's established now, he's the number two. That's good. He's all, he's also um, a guy who, in in the proper sense of the word, is good around the hotel. Do you remember Stephen Hunt's? Was it Dion who interviewed Stephen Hunt? There was a, a big interview with Hunt uh, around uh, about the Euros. It's maybe mm. only about a year. Or I so think, yeah, ago. I think it was it was under Stephen, was it a Stephen Hunt. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. And uh, anyway, <laughs> Hunt was talking about Ford putting everyone else to shame. Like he'd be walking. We saw him around Sopot every day. He was always just in and around the place. And apparently, he'd be. Opening the doors, leaving you know, l- allowing the other the wives to walk through, and being the other gentleman, and just being around the place while the rest of them were trying to focus. Or certainly, <laughs> according to Hunt, some of them were trying to focus. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it's the third goalkeeper. Yeah, what a I role. mean, I mean, if you're talking about good around the hotel, what you need is your third goalkeeper to be the best person around the hotel because I mean, he's not going to get any game time anyway. So bring forty. I suppose, yeah, the, the, the main quality you're looking for your third-choice goalkeeper is acceptance that you're not going to play. Yeah. Now, don't be coming into my office every day banging down saying, why am I playing? You're, you're not playing because Tufel is better. With your massive what. goalkeeper hands mm. banging down my door. <laughs> uh, Ken, I'll, I'll give you a bolter for the squad. Oh, yeah? Confident Jack Byrne. As I What's bolter? Somebody comes... It's a, oh, some, like a bolt from the blue. Yeah, it's, it's generally uh, used when discussing Irish Rugby World Cup squads. Mm. Will there be a bolter? A bolter? Probably comes th- from oh, no, Lions. Comes, actually, Lions squads. Yeah. Probably say. comes from uh, horse racing, I'm going to say. Bolting out the uh, door. A horse that bolts. Theo Walcott would have been a bolter for oh. England when he was included in that Sven squad. So you think young Jack Byrne... Well, no, I just wanted an excuse to talk about him because I loved his quotes this week. <laughs> <laughs> he is very young, Jack Byrne, compared to all the other Irish players. I'm just looking at it there. We have a very old team. There's very few. I mean, we're just looking at the 33-man squad. The youngest player in it is Cyrus Christie, who's 23. Apart from Jack Byrne, who isn't actually in the squad officially, but he's training with them. That's very old. 
I mean, 23 is close to the average age of the England team that was that had a 100% record in, in qualifying. You know, it's not, not too far off. I mean, there was a lot of teams in that in the qualifying tournament who had an average age of 25 years and something. And 25 years, you'd be one of the youngest players in the, in the Ireland squad. Yeah, but you wouldn't be worried about it. It's not, it's not as though we've got a load of lads who are going to be starting who are in their 30s. I mean, we mentioned John O'Shea, maybe Shea Given there. Walters. Who the Walters. Okay, we do have quite a few in and around. But it's listening, actually, it wasn't until you look at the, the date of birth and see the age of the squad that you realise that it's actually not that young a squad because if you listen to Martin O'Neill, he, he's spoken a few times this week about what it's like to have the young players around, the younger ones coming in and, and, and bring a new energy or put the older lads under pressure or just bring a different dynamic to the whole thing. And w- when I hear a manager say that, I think, oh, he must have brought a rake of 18, 19-year-olds, 20, maybe 21-year-olds. These are all 24, 25, 27. Or in the case of Wes, in his 30s. It's, yeah. a, fa- it's yeah. a fair point. He's brought in guys who weren't getting a game under the last manager. But yeah. who aren't Young players in, in, in the Irish context are Shane Long, 29 years old. Kieran <laughs> uh, Clark, who's, who's 27. Daryl Murphy, who's 33. Okay, yeah, that's a prime um, example. Kieran Clark looks, looks yeah. young, though. Mm? Oh, Clark, that's got to count for something. Also, Shane Long is going to look 25 when he's 50. We all know <laughs> this. He's, yeah. he's going to yeah. look amazing. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he, I mean, he looks well. Yeah. What can you say? So, the, the, <laughs> Ken, you're saying the key, the takeaway from this chat for everybody is that uh, it's important to look young <laughs> and you might get a game in Martin Most, O'Neill's most team. kids. Well, we're, okay, <laughs> where we, we were talking about Jack Byrne. Yeah, give us some of his quotes here. Well, Jack Byrne said, uh, he, he had a few different things to say, but one of the things, probably the, the cockiest thing that he said, it's, besides, yeah, sure, of course I want to go to the Euros. You'd be stupid if you didn't want to go to the Euros. Yeah, uh, he said, uh, "I'm a technical player, and I affect the game in different ways than maybe Roy might have affected them by getting on the ball." Uh, he then said, quickly. "I'm not saying yeah, that quickly. he couldn't <laughs> play football. Um, I'm just saying that's that's just my key: the last pass rather than the first pass." So I don't think Roy Keane will have liked that at all. Keane said afterwards, "Yeah, he's he's confident that he's from Dublin, isn't he? Yeah, I didn't think he was from Cork or Waterford." <laughs> um, I mean. <laughs> because I, I suppose it shows uh, an indelicacy on the part of Jack Brown because he is essentially saying that he's a better passer than Roy Keane which if he is I'm really looking forward to seeing him play for Ireland for the next 10 years mm-hmm. um, but it is certainly one way to force your way uh, into the into the limelight Do you like these kind of confident quotes? I mean is this is this seizing the limelight for the right reasons or is this Jarvis Cocker blundering on stage with Michael Jackson uh, to try to disrupt his performance at the Brit Awards that time It's it's what he believes I think Dion did an interview with him earlier in the year as well like he's not just some lads and and it was actually on the back of 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 all the stuff that Roy Keane has said over the years that became this trend really noticeable trend in football that every young footballer particularly would talk in interviews the way Roy Keane talked so they would all talk about you know it's, for me it's all about winning and if I, if I don't win and I'm, I'm in a fowler all week and the, the real passionate obsessive character and you're looking at them going I know you you're, you're not like that why are you talking why are you saying that and why do you think you have to be we've all to be little Roy Keane clones now and that was just the thing but Jack Byrne actually genuinely believes that um, so why not say it yeah I mean, and it wasn't as though that's like just it's a, a baldy thing. yeah even in, in the arena of of a senior squad that he's not even actually officially a part of. I don't think I'm ahead of schedule just because I'm 19. I don't really think of it that way. I know a lot of boys are a lot older than me, but I think I can affect whatever I do in a football pitch, so it doesn't matter what age I am. You can take your pick. There were a bunch of them. It was it was this uh, just this constant, very upbeat assessment of where he's at. And he's grown up at Manchester City. He's now gone on loan to Holland, 
of for which he was uh, heaping some praise upon himself. I think might be fair to say, but he's he's right. He actually has gone out there and gone to a different league, and we're always talking about how players should probably do that. Uh, I like it. What, what are you laughing at? I'm just laughing at the image of him heaping praise <laughs> yeah. upon himself. Well, here, here, is it like it. a like a guy who's buried up to his waist in the beach and he's sort of dragging sand closer, <laughs> building it around his own? Sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone, Ken, and experience something different. I always want to improve. I never want to stand still. Even if I played 150 times for Ireland, it's, I wouldn't want to stand still. I'd want to play 160 times. Uh, it's is, that a, is, that, is he having a go at Robbie Keane when he says that? It's worth it and, and it's taking risks. It's talent as well, but it's mostly work and taking risks and going out to Holland, experiencing something new, getting people talking. Yeah. It's not your standard interview by someone who's, again, I repeat, not actually even officially called up to the squad. Just yeah, training with the and, squad. And the, feel is all, the fear is always, are you setting yourself up for a fall as a sports person talking in that way? What do you think? Actually, when I was in that position, I remember this is before the days when you had media officers screening interview requests for the players. So myself and Colin Healy were in a room. We were both in the squad for the first time. So we both knew we were the focus of attention from the media just because we were the new guy. You just obviously know from working in the media, there's a, there's a, it's fairly repetitive. You're going after the same players for the same interviews. So you go after the new guys. And neither of us would answer the phone in the room because we were afraid it would be a journalist asking us directly, for an interview and because these are journalists we would have personally known from under 18s, 19s, 21s trips. It's harder to say no. You can't say no because immediately assume oh he's going to think I'm a dick <laughs> now that I'm in the senior squad I won't talk to him. So if you if you expose yourself to the request you've got to say yes and then you're the one that's going to be in the paper the next day and I remember going I, I shouldn't be in the paper the next day if this is a squad of all these people. Like I saw it was the very opposite of of Jack Burns' approach to the thing, I didn't want to particularly to say much, and I came out with all the, you know, do you, do you think he'll go to the World Cup? Well, you know, it's any young boy's dream to go to the World Cup, and I'm no different. Like yeah. the, the the most neutral, blandest, please don't notice me kind of phrase. So it's refreshing that a guy will come out and speak the way Jack Byrne is. I like it. I like it. I like it. kind of. Ruffled everything. I know O'Neill said it in a jokey way. So I wonder what the senior players will will think of when they yeah. when they read that. But um, well, I thought that was interesting that O'Neill would say that. What what O'Neill basically said was, uh, yeah, you know, I'll tell Glenn Whelan that he's been onlining. Uh, you know, if you see if you see Jack getting carried out of the training session, you'll know what's happened, kind of thing. And yeah, I, I mean, he was he was joking. Obviously, I'm sure he's telling yeah. Glenn Whelan to injure Jack Byrne, but. Uh, the idea that you know the the hierarchy must be respected, is that actually does the hierarchy have to be respected? Like, is that is it important if someone was to do that? If someone was to kind of, you know, start to think they were the big I am to an extent, that yeah. uh, that it's important, it's healthy for the for the uh, social you know system of the squad for someone like Glenn Whelan to remind them of the uh, pecking order. I think it's it's a big thing in club football actually. That there's this idea that the young lads you know your place, and there's a various the various ways in which that's encouraged. Like so, you'd have kind of demeaning things you have to do when it's your first squad. You have to sing in front of the squad. If there's nights out, the youngest player is the one who has to go to the bar all the time. So you're a bit of a joey. Like it's kind of this thing that well, you've got to earn the right for someone else to buy you drinks. You have to all, all that kind. I know there's kind of silly examples, but it's the same kind of thing. Is it is it important though? Is it does it work or is it just the kind of like uh, archaic bullying culture that the kind of witches, you know, uh, you know, it, people who've been through it say, well, it never did me any harm. 
But it's been, it's been lawyered out of basically every other work environment in the world. Yeah, it's like we, we shouldn't have been doing this at all. People who say never, they, it never did me any harm, it, it did them harm. That's why they've turned into merciless bullies and abusers uh, and making everyone else's life a misery and passing it on down the generation. Well, I remember, a memory actually came to me as I was coming in here today. Before every, often after training sessions or in the build-up to a game when I played, I would have to get, I, I would ask for a rope either on my back or mainly on my back because it would just always help and then I was in the Irish squad that time and so I've had this tried and trusted routine I know how to get my body as best as I can to get out on the pitch but I remember being in the physio room one day I'm going in and I was about to say the physio gives a rub my back and then I think Gary Kelly Robbie Hart I think the Leeds lads all walked in and I was like going I, I'm not going to say it now I don't like there's an order here there's like a, I, I'm not going to occupy the physio for the next 20 minutes when these lads I don't know what their requests are going to be, but surely they've preference over me. I'm not saying this is the right thing. It's 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 probably not at all. If you're going in to, to make an impression on the people around you, then go around like a sheepish little knob isn't the way to do it. But uh, just w- one thing about the Jack Byrne comments, though. I mean, if you are if you're not part of a 39 man squad with you know four months to go, three months to go till the actual squad is announced. Does it not make a lot of sense to come in and make a bit of noise? And like, okay, he's playing in that under-21 game tonight. The only thing people will want to know from that under-21 game is, how did Jack Brown play? And, you know, so, like, the, the comments might be the comments of a very brash, cocky young player, but we're sitting here talking about Jack Byrne in a way that we would definitely not have been if he came out and said, it's every young boy's dream to go to the Euros and I'm no different. So you think I'm being like a... a this Promoting is a, yourself is the right thing to do situation, in this situation. When you're not part of a 39-man squad, I would say a little bit of self-promotion is a pretty smart thing to do at this juncture. Particularly when you, when you it, it's self-promotion. He obviously does think he's this good. But, so if you think you're this good, then I don't think there's any harm whatsoever in coming in and stating it in as entertaining as possible a fashion in front of the Irish media to try and get people talking about you. Because I suppose the, one thing you're certainly doing is, as O'Neill has said and every international manager says when new players come in, they always say things like, how are they going to integrate with the rest of the squad and how they deal with all the stuff that, 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 that you do. It, it's clear from this trip that Byrne isn't phased by any of that. So you can take that off the list of possible reasons not to include him. Um, you would assume O'Neill has seen him play at club level. Interestingly, actually, there's probably a, a notion out there that Jack Byrne is this player who's been nurtured now by the FAI for years and he's a big, big hope. Um, he was bombed out of the under-19 squad. Like, lads his own age, and he was fully fit and available, and Paul Doolan excluded him from the squad. Um, Jack Byrne claims that he wasn't given a specific reason as to why that was the case. I don't know if Paul Doolan has spoken publicly about why that was the case. But here's a fellow who didn't even get picked among peers. And and so it's not like he's been wowing the FAI for years. The FAI, have to, you know, we've got this fella, and, and he's the one, so... Seems um, incre- yeah. Seems speaking brashly and bigging himself up, maybe is no harm. Seems incre- right. It seems incredibly yeah. that incredible that he wouldn't be picked at any stage for the underage setup, considering he plays for Man City. I know he's now out on loan, but Patrick Vieira has spoken publicly about him. Ken uh, Vieira, before Vieira went off to New York, was saying they uh, talked about him, uh, and you know, because people even then were suggesting there, there were similarities between Jack Byrne and Roy Keane, which I don't think were technical similarities, but rather similarities of of demeanor mm-hmm. and uh and Vieira said well the only way to compare Jack and Roy is that they are both nuts 
Um, uh, but that can help, especially when you're Irish, <laughs> said Patrick Vieira. Uh, you have to have it. As we're in a world of competition, the desire and personality will make a difference. Sometimes people get it wrong between having a personality and being stupid and cocky. But Jack Byrne has personality. Yeah. So just on the right side of it. Well, I've seen that uh, personality up close, actually. You've this, seen it. This because com- yeah, this competitive personality as yeah. Jack, as uh, I should say, Patrick Vieira described it. Yeah, yeah. I was at a, I, I was at a tournament a couple of years ago. Not a not a competitive tournament at all. Somewhat surprised to see him there, <laughs> considering this is an Ireland underage international, Man City. I was a Man City player, but I was quite impressed that he would turn up and play something like this. Boy, did he take it seriously. Really? Oh, he might as well have been playing for Ireland or Man City. Really wanted to win. Sometimes took umbrage with teammates for not returning one-twos, that kind of thing. Who does this remind you of? Uh, oh, well, it's it's all McDevitt, but that's neither here nor there, Ken. I mean, I, I just think that Owen is uniquely positioned to talk about this, given that this is basically how he behaves himself. I, like looking in the mirror. I didn't see that side of you during the tournament we've This isn't recently. about me, it's about Jack Byrne. <laughs> no, it's, it's about you. No, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had one or two incidents, but nothing like this. Right? <laughs> so, Jack Byrne. I want to see this idea. Listen, Richie, yeah. you were the big dog. Keep talking in your yeah. mic, Richie. Yeah. Yeah. You were the big dog in that team. He knows his place. But when, when he reckons he's the best player in the pitch, Richie, then that, oh, that's so all that's a, that's all Back yeah. to the when hierarchy. Mur- yeah, when Murph is the main striker, I kind of think, geez, i got to pull around here. But anyway, uh, it, it got to a certain stage of this competition. And um, yeah, young starter Jack Byrne got in a bit of a physical altercation with a member of the opposition a, a bigger man a much bigger man I'm going to say uh, didn't look like the wisest course of action on Jack's part um, this fella who he was involved in the altercation with didn't uh, you know he, he didn't hold back we'll just say there was a coming together there was a coming together there was a physical clash and it would have been a definite red card in the current yes Premier League environment a, yeah. and also in the 1970s <laughs> <laughs> how did it end? it ended with um, our our hero Jack Byrne on the wrong end of the of a, of a very short very quick physical altercation that's yeah. all I'm willing to say and a, a lot of shouting at each other thereafter it was uh, it's an insight into what Vieira talks about there this yeah. guy clearly has there's there's um, yeah, yeah, there's a, an uber competitive personality at play there. Yeah. And I'll be intrigued to see if it comes through over the next few years at, at Senior International. Well, I hope so. I mean, we haven't really had a kind of a player with that touch of craziness for quite a long time, really, have we? I mean, I can't think We're of, too nice, is that what you're saying? Well, I just I can't think of, of any uh, Irish player who's been an obvious red card risk for a long time. I don't know if he is. Well, James McLean I should, is. I, I shouldn't say that. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. And in fairness to Bird, I, I, when he's playing professionally, I don't know. I, I don't know what his red card or yellow card record is. So McLean got to be careful. To be fair, to describe him in that way. To be fair to McLean, he he McLean, yeah. uh, he he does he he is a, he does risk a lot of cards, but it's usually for stuff that he's doing, like tackles that he makes, stuff that he actually does as part of the game, rather than you know I haven't seen him get involved. But when he does get involved in. Verbals. It's usually either on Twitter or with opposing fans at the stadium. It's I I haven't seen him on the field get into you know be particularly get, you know have kind of running battles in the field. But I have seen him kind of kick people up in the air with uh, reckless tackles that you know in a European Championship environment could be uh, could be red card. It could right. be very entertaining though if Jack Byrne is in the Irish squad for years to come if he continues to speak in this way because yeah. it's such a departure from the. Humble, Chuck's happy to be here or slot into the hierarchy. Is this how it's going to be, though, in the age of Conor McGregor? This is it now. 
this is the way it's every, every single 19-year-old. Yeah, every single attention-seeking 19-year-old will just be blasting their own credentials. And very subtly trash-talking Roy Keane. <laughs> <laughs> a last quick word is on, it's the first mention of them this tournament and we're only at March 24th. How have we how have we survived this long in the build-up, I say? The Wags, Murph. Chris mm. Coleman. Chris Coleman apparently has banned Wags from the team hotel during Wales' campaign. So Stephen Doyle of 98 FM didn't use the term wag, actually, uh, in his question. Partners, I think he went with a classy... Well, because it's horrible. He's a classy man, it's Stephen a, Doyle, and it's a classy it's question. It's a horrible phrase. So he asked him what... He asked Roy Keane this week, what's the policy from the Irish management team on this thorny issue? I'm not sure. I don't know if we've banned any wag yet. I don't know. No, I'm not sure. Um, I, to be fair, we've not discussed it. I think the manager mentioned it last night in the meeting. He'll have a look at that close to the time. If there's families nearby, Martin, listen, we're working with the senior team. We treat them like men, um, treat them like adults. And if there's opportunities for the families to come and visit, I think that'll be open to the players. And um, as long as obviously it's not silly when it's you know two or three days before a game. There's a time and a place for everything, but if we need to remind anybody, we're going over there to try and do well in the tournament. And from my own experience, when I've been away, my family haven't been too keen to meet up with me. So it's <laughs> it's every family to their own, you know. Everyone sometimes are glad to see the back of you. I love Roy Keane's tone there, especially yeah. at the start. Is Roy Keane too funny to be a manager? <laughs> I mean, can you think of any funny managers? I mean, because it's just his delivery of that line. Clough. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Clough was very, very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you, you can do it. Most yeah. of them are, I mean, Ferguson was totally humorless. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. yeah cause, cause his comic timing is, is, is Keane's comic timing is, brilliant. is unbelievably good. But, yeah. you know, again, if you listen to that answer, he kind of says both yes and no. Yeah, they were, uh, yeah. It, we haven't really talked about it. I mean, as long we as... Talk, we haven't talked about it. We, Martin mentioned it last night. <laughs> and, and then he says, of course, we treat the players like men, you know, anything to do with it. But as long as it's not two or three days before a game, I basically the whole period of yeah, the tournament... Yeah, it's a very short <laughs> tournament. It's not a, the Rugby World Cup. There's not a week's gap in between matches. What do you think? Should WAGs be banned from the Irish camp? I, I, I think the partners get a bad rap. And I think this goes back to the days was when Sven was manager, when, when the partners of players... Was it Cheryl Cole? Yes. Victoria Beckham, Colleen Rooney. Really high profile celebrities, basically. And I, I, I think when people hear the term wags, they immediately assume it's something like that. And that if you have the partners around the hotel, that it'll just be the circus and sideshow and that they all they're interested in doing is just spend the money and shopping and they don't know anything about football and they don't care and they're just a distraction. And that's not the case. Like Keane said there, if would would you begrudge a fella a visit from his wife? Or to go for a stroll around the hotel grounds with his wife, maybe his children. That's like I don't know in yeah, any other job. In any other job with this conversation, if you were in any other job, you're going away for a month's work, and you said to your boss, you know, me as a 34 year old who's married 10 years with four kids, like, is it okay if I see my wife? Like yeah. you, you, the conversation wouldn't happen. So Keen is right. Like most people, can be trusted to behave like an adult. Yep. And if there are lads in the squad who can't be given the same leeway as others a lot of squads have those kind of players then the manager needs to deal with that it's just the, the language around it though it's like banning people you know yeah. it's like Shane Long's wife is serving a two game bad you know like it's bizarre <laughs> like what the hell are you talking about I like you Keane's know? first answer I don't know have we banned any wag as if it was a particular one yeah. it, have, have they have written yeah, down all the names yeah. no, no, she, she, she's, she's not, not her again yeah. no way 
Richie, ridiculous. looking forward to plenty of Euro 2016 chats in the next few weeks. Thank you. Cheers, lads. Since chatting to Richie, you left us, Ken, to go and hear from Martin O'Neill. Mm-hmm. He addressed a couple of the issues that we discussed there uh, over the last 25 minutes or so. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I'll tell you who was talked about a lot was old Jack Byrne. He was... He came up again and again and again. Um, now, not not really in the sense that anyone thinks he's going to go to the Euros. Um, but he, he was talked to... I mean, O'Shea had to talk about it. O'Shea was asked, you know, you, you were at Royal Antwerp. You know, he's obviously in uh, in Holland. It's quite similar. Uh, he <laughs> said, yeah, hopefully he'll be the better for that for that experience. You know, confidence is very important. Um you know, to get that edge in your football. O'Neill was asked at some point, you know, you going into the under-21s to see Jack Byrne? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Have you got any advice for him? Don't be so cocky, uh, says uh, Martin O'Neill. With a mischievous glint. Oh, a mischievous glint. There were lots of mischievous glint. He said something else with a mischievous glint as well, On We were discussing the subject of um, the wives and girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Wives and girlfriends. I do, I, yeah, partners. That's... Let's start saying partners. Everyone. I think I think Stephen Doyle got it right. Partners was good. Stephen Doyle got it right, but uh, the wives and girls. This he, Martin O'Neill was asked about that. What's his policy going to be? And this was his answer. Well, it depends. Uh, I think it depends on how good looking the girls are. Come on, don't <laughs> really, yeah, they're really attractive. They're very very wealthy. The uglier ones, I'm afraid, no. <laughs> uh, so you can hear nice. all the male laughter in the background there. As Martin O'Neill spoke to the room of mainly, but not exclusively, male sports journalists. Uh, That's not good. Martin O'Neill, Martin O'Neill's attempts at humour do fall flat sometimes. I mean, that's just that's. He had a few. He had a few good jokes. I'm finding it hard to to verbalise. It's just uh, so ridiculous. Well, I'd say that's the kind of so out of kilter with how how people uh, in general. Talk about sports these days. Well, these sh- days, should, yeah, yeah, and I think that's the that's maybe the crucial point. Like uh, it was clear when Martin O'Neill was saying this that I mean he's ob- he's obviously joking, but it's a kind of a joke which, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, ah, listen, come on, it's not like the you know Ireland Euro twenty twenty sixteen uh, team hotel is a workplace or anything. I mean that would be ridiculous. That would be a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. So. It's you know he 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 obviously didn't think in any sense that he was kind of had skated out onto some thin ice at all. He he was blithely kind of uh, appeared blithely unconcerned by any of that. Clearly, he's joking. Is it an appropriate joke? Uh, I think probably not because once again, you know, it's you're into this uh, territory of like reducing uh, women to their appearance. No, of course it's not appropriate. It's just a terrible, inappropriate gag. That I'm surprised got much laughter, but well, you got to remember that a press conference is an extremely sycophantic environment, which is which can also be a little nervous. Sometimes people uh, laugh. I mean, nothing is as funny as it seems in a press conference. I mean, the drunkest wedding crowd, the funniest best man speech is not going to get <laughs> uh, the kind of laughs that the mildest gag in a in a press conference setting gets. You know, the, the sycophantic laughter of the press conference is. Uh, there's no equal to it in any other situation. Before we wrap up here, I've got a bit of good news I'd like to share with you. If you enjoyed our shows in San Francisco last year, you might be interested to know that our never-ending world tour is about to hit its latest stop. Hit it. Hit it.
New York was his town, and it always would be. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza. And the Mets lead 3-2. to Ahmed Ali in the red trunk. Joe Frazier in the green trunk. Almost ready for the fight of the century. Then to read on the forecourt. Right side from 20. Jumps. Yes. Willis was hit on his first two. Behind the bag. I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way. And it's not overconfidence thing. It's football stance. Not easy. On to it comes Houghton. And Houghton with the shots. And it's there. What splendid sparkling opportunism for the old left peg this time. Remember Stuttgart 88. It's Ray Houghton once again. It's Italy nil. It's Ireland 1. This is incredible. Yeah, thanks for our good pals from Aer Lingus. That's Aer Lingus, perf. We're going to a New York City. Well, not to a New York City. That the was a New York City. Misprint on the script that I wrote out for myself here. To the, the one and only. It would be we would be selling the listeners a pulp a small bit if we were going to well ah New York. We're going I mean. to Nueva York. <laughs> <laughs> the Mexican non-union equivalent of New York. Uh, it's a week of podcasting we're going to be doing from the Big Apple, just to confirm. Ah, uh, Big Apple, here. yes. A Big Apple from April the 11th. If you're strolling around New York right at this moment, listen to this podcast thinking, wait, wait a minute, I, I live in New York City. Well, then why not come along and see us do a spectacular live show on Wednesday, April 13th? Uh, maybe, go on. No, sorry. Have I you just, got an issue with this can, no, I can really, the... really imagine that the, the shock on uh, New York. <gasps> wait, wait a minute. I, I'm in New York right now. So when that's the lads the are over, I'm in New York. That's how they talk, I'm sure. Uh, maybe you might be visiting the city at that time. No, that's, that's more realistic, Murph, actually. Uh, I'd say if you live in New York, you're pretty sure when the city's mentioned, it immediately chimes with you. But mm-hmm. if you're traveling over and yeah. you're a fan of the podcast Re-check and you hear this, people are saying, wow, what, t- stop shiting on there, my David. Tell us the dates again. Well, the dates are from uh, April the 11th. The live show is on Wednesday, April 13th. I know a man coming from Boston for it. He's been in touch with me already, on to say that he's going. He's coming from Boston. One of the dropkick Murphys. Even better, someone from Milltown. So uh, <laughs> even better than the. Uh, well, I would much rather have a pint with this gentleman than have a pint with the dropkick Murphys. I mean, I, I, I've no interest in meeting the dropkick. I'm sorry, that's just. But what about that amazing tune? Well, it's a hell of a tune, but I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, on that's just my feelings on the matter. I'm sorry. Okay, you won't be seeing said too the Dropkick Murphys, but you'll be seeing a lot of great stuff in the Brass Monkey in Meatpackers in Manhattan on Wednesday, April 13th. Tickets are very limited. It's a first ever rooftop show as well. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, we're doing a um, U2 style, as Simon said, a rooftop. <laughs> Good uh, pop culture reference exactly, yeah. Simon there. Tickets are limited, so get emailing New York at secondcaptains.com with your name and the number of tickets you're looking for, and we'll immediately put you in the draw. So that email address, which I, ador- I just adore the email address, New York at secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thanks Kieran. Thanks so much for listening. We have got another podcast out there ready for you to listen to, Ken. Yeah, getting, already getting some tweets about it, Owen. All right. There's a lot of, <laughs> lot of 1916 talk. The um, Oh, look. Just, just listen to it. Just listen to it. There, yeah. diver- there are diverging views. You can have a listen and judge for yourselves. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 